Welcome to the sixth episode of the Slow TV podcast. This is the first of two episodes which will be thinking about Den Sture Elkvandringen, which is the Great Moose Migration, a lovely piece of slow TV coming out of Sweden the past couple early springs. This episode is a conversation with a friend, Björn Lindell in Stockholm, Sweden, and very much like myself, has studied slow TV at master's level and thinking deeply about it and its ramifications. As you will hear, a universe of thought evolves the more and more you scratch the surface of slow TV and delve deeper. It's not just TV. First part of the episode, we think about slow TV in general and related aspects, how we've studied slow TV, thinking about an innate sense of time, early film, cognitive loading, media psychology, state of flow, and then the last 25 minutes or so, we think more specifically about the great moose migration, wandering around a compare and contrast with Norwegian and Swedish slow TVs. National pride, audience feedback and audience reception, social media. We refer to a few publications and online talks. I'll be popping them in the episode notes. Now, I do need to give a bit of an apology to Bjorn for taking my time getting this podcast out. There is an explanation which is quite relevant to Slow TV, actually. It was recorded on the 15th of May, just as the first lockdown measures began to be eased just a tiny little bit here in the UK. I have found aspects getting through this year quite demanding. I think quite a few of us have had similar situations and there's been everybody at home. There's been the anxiety of getting through this lockdown and the virus. So there's been very little creative space. There's been noise around the house, people here all the time. I like to create with next to nobody around, you know. It's uh, gets me get in the zone, in a state of flow. And with a few domestic things going on, there's been a lot to think about in the background of my head. If you think about lots of browsers being open and before long you've got lots of things ticking away in the background, you're trying to work on the top one that you've got, but it's going too slow or freezing up or wants you to do a reboot. That's kind of what's been going on in my head for a lot of this year. And I found the cognitive load of it a bit much Things have changed in the past couple of weeks uh, positively and I'm hoping and trusting things will continue to either be as good as they are at the moment or even improve more so. It has taken a lot longer than I would have liked to complete this podcast, but here we are now. Now, the next episode of the Slow TV podcast will also be about the Great Moose Migration with another friend in Sweden that will be out next week. Do check the episode notes for links and ways of being in touch and do feel free to say hi. And if you feel you have something to offer the Slow TV podcast, either as a thinker, a filmmaker or a fan, do get in touch too. timprevet at gmail.com. timprevet at gmail.com is the best way to grab my attention and set things rolling. So here we are. We're going to go over to an exploration of slow TV from two master's students who enjoy thinking about slow TV. And once again, thanks to Bjorn for an hour of engaging conversation about slow television. 
so great to have your company, Bjorn. I've been so pleased to link up with you through the blog, through the slow TV fans, thinkers and filmmakers, and to have somebody I can bounce things academically off who's thinking deeply about slow TV, which might seem a very strange thing to do for to many people. So tell me about, about yourself, where you are, why you're studying slow TV, and then we can talk about what's been happening with slow TV in Sweden, which has been exciting. Yeah, my name is Björn Lindell, uh, and I'm uh, 49 years old, living in Stockholm. And uh, I sort of... Um, I've been taking a bachelor's degree uh, in cinema studies just a few years ago and then uh, embarked on a master's uh, program uh, that I'm attending now. And uh, during my bachelor, I got uh, really interested. I was really curious about slow TV because I've heard about it in Norway uh, and this was about uh, 2017, so uh, I chose that as, as a topic, and uh, partly also because I, I re- I'm really um, I find this concept of going slow uh, fascinating as a topic, and but also for a personal reason that it's um, uh, I need that for myself as well to to sort of um, slow down and uh, find uh, approaches to deal with uh, information overflow and uh, the the fast society that we live in with the fast media flows and so on. So that felt like a good um, topic and um, uh, it wasn't that much that was written about it because it was a very, since it was a very new thing being a, uh, starting in two, 2009 in Norway, as you well know. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I had so, that problem finding resources when I started my master's course. Like, yeah. that, that, you go and search Scopus, um, academic bases, uh, databases, Google Scholar. There's mm. nothing on slow TV. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, and your, uh, your video documentary was one of the... Uh, things I found quite early so it was really inspiring as well for me and I was a bit uh, starstruck when I got in contact with you as well <laughs> so, oh, thank you <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a small world but uh, uh, and so uh, my topic as a, uh, for my bachelor thesis uh, then I, I really uh, examined uh, I focused on the the train ride films or the train ride programs uh, of Nor- Norwegian slow TV, which they were quite common in the beginning, at least with mm-hmm. the, with the Bergen Barnum first one as well and others. Uh, and I made uh, I tried to look. Uh, at, I wanted to discuss uh, topics about uh, speed and modernity and so on and. I found it interesting that uh, in the early days of cinema, in the in the early, the late, uh, what do you say, oh, in the in the early years of 1900, basically, mm-hmm. uh, there was uh, um, they were very fascinated by uh, 
uh, a, a, a form of films called Phantom Rides, where they put cameras on uh, the front of trains, basically, and filmed them. And these films were very short. They were like a minute or so, but uh, it was uh, something thrilling about it. And uh, to me, uh, that was a good sort of um, discussion point because... Uh, uh, early in, in the early days of film, uh, a train was seen as at that time trains was something representing speed and modernity. Whereas today we we look to trains as a way of relaxing. Basically, it's it, mm-hmm. the idea of going on a train ride is 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 something that feels quite slow actually and. Uh, so well, um, I just found it interesting to, to sort of reflect on on those ish, issues, looking uh, at a hundred years divide between the two. Pick up three things from mentioning early cinema. Am I right in thinking that early cinema, the there was very little ability to actually edit the film anyway, so almost anything that they recorded would have had to have been in real time. There's no chop yeah. chop chop. Like um, I, when I did my masters, and I couldn't recall the name of the film, but there was something to do with the history of editing in film. We watched a documentary about it, mm. uh, and absolutely fascinating how the innovation of using the camera to tell stories grew mm. over over the century. So that, that's a so, correct perception. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I touched a little on that uh, in my bachelor's thesis, the fact that um, they put the camera on the train and uh, filmed it. Uh, and uh, the early films, they were like just one take. And But then they, um, some of the Phantom Rides, then they sort of moved the camera from one side of the, they, they changed the angle basically on the camera, so then they had to pause, uh, stop the film, and just uh, move the camera and start the film again. So it, it sort of became an edit basically. Uh, as far as I know, I, I didn't really dig that very deep into these sources, uh, but there's there are also um, the one idea that. Uh, an early type of editing uh, where they added a narrative was uh, a film where they, uh, it's a, a short that has been sort of redone in a lot of various ways called The Kiss in the Tunnel, where you see uh, the first part of the film, you see, see it from a train's perspective. And then it goes into a tunnel and it gets dark and the, then they cut to a, a, an acted scene with actors, basically a small small joke that someone kisses someone they think is someone else and so on. And uh, so that was sort of an editing, uh, an early editing experiment that I actually included the train rides. So uh, that is also something I I try to trying to remember what I wrote in my bachelor's, here. <laughs> but uh, that was an interesting idea as well. That uh, the train rides were involved in in the early development of narratives, whereas today uh, the slow TV train rides 
are uh, they have a very weak narrative or, or a, mm-hmm. uh, they don't really strive to to tell a narrative so so there's a lot of interesting things you can find or, or speculate about by looking at this hundred year divide basically so that takes it very nicely into um, another point I wrote down there and you were describing uh, in the first moments of the interview how uh, watching slow tv allowed you to have space in your head this is something which we can describe as cognitive loading what is the cognitive load of the media we're engaged with and uh with slow tv if you choose not to pay attention for however long there is a strong likelihood that you won't miss very much so at, at the moment we've been, I, I don't know about you, um, I don't think you've had so much of a lockdown in Sweden as we have in the UK. No. No. We've been making our way through TV box sets, as as have many people around the world. And so some of the dramas, if you don't, if you look at, look at your phone for a couple of minutes during it to check a text or notification, and you haven't paid mm. attention, like your following the narrative is derailed and you need to try and pick it up. Whereas slow TV, most of the time, there is space for you to do other things while it is on. And then suddenly, oh, there's something happening. Like, is a moose going to swim? Which is obviously mm. in the direction that we're, we're going to head in a, in a little bit. Then, then you can stop and, and give it the full cognitive load that, mm. that uh, you require. And you, ha- haven't, you haven't got to struggle to keep up with the pace. Which also then, I guess, my, my first question was, we were talking about TV being slow, a slow TV. What do we mean by slow? Because most slow TV isn't unnaturally slow. It's about the TV, the story unfolding at its own natural pace. Yeah. H- have you read In Praise of Slow by Carl Honore? Yeah, I did read it, uh, or at least parts of it, uh, during my bachelor work. So uh, there, there, uh, there, there were two words that, um, I, I took away from that book that really helped me understand uh, slow TV a lot more. With there not being any academic writing, especially at the time I, I was doing my research and made my film well, nearly six years ago now, gosh, yeah. th- there was nothing out there. So I had to try and, and frame slowness uh, in a much broader context and then reflect that down to slow TV. And two words that Carl Honore brought out in, in In Praise of Slow was Eigenzeit, own time from German, meaning like it's something's own innate time not imposing a different time on uh, uh, something where it doesn't fit so mm. the eigensight of well how long does it take to get from bergen to oslo well s- seven hours or seven hours 14 if there's a train delay or how long mm. does it take for the ferry to get from bergen to kirkenes well uh was it five five and a quarter days the amount of time it actually takes for an activity or a journey to actually unfold and then the other word the other phrase really that Carl Honore uh, mentioned was um tempo giusto from Italian meaning the right speed so again if it takes five and a half five and a quarter days to get from Bergen to Kirkenes are you going to speed that up no because it does it kind of injures the innate sense 
of the time of that journey. So you relate that at its own tempo, giusto, its own innate correct time. So mm. slow TV typically, uh, and again, there, there are examples uh, uh, to um, exceptions, allows things to unfold in its own time and at the speed that is correct for that subject. Um, one of the BBC's slow TV productions, which has been in my, one of my favourites ones, was, was the Dawn Chorus, which was heavily edited, but it, it brought the story of Birdsong in different environments. Having recorded audio of Birdsong myself on a number of occasions, there can be considerable times when there isn't so much going on, which for uh, a TV programme... If there isn't anything going on, literally nothing going on, people will tune tune out. So sometimes it requires a bit of editing. If we're thinking about slow TV, what do we mean by slow? The cognitive and the cognitive loading that the speed of it uh, brings to us. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you had a very good points there. It's to me, it's also. Um, uh, a lot about the editing as well that uh, doesn't really uh, that you really uh, and I guess that ties into the the right speed of it to the tempo gesture perhaps uh, that uh, you don't cut too often between various angles and so on because uh, or you don't you don't try to guide uh, the viewers um, uh, viewpoint too much so that you as a viewer can feel that you you yourself can explore um, what you see in, in and take your time doing it and also the, I, I think also it's it is important that the programs themselves are long that they are going on for a long time because it um, uh, it allows you to to sort of to um, have them in your environment. Basically, it becomes it's not something you have to sit down and watch intensely and focused. You can turn on the television and go and do other stuff, and you're still you still have the program surrounding yep. you or, or nearby. So it's uh, that, that's uh, the marathon aspect. I, I think is quite. Uh, necessary for for this kind of slow TV at least. Yes, I remember earlier this year. Seems a long time ago now. And um, when NRK showed their uh, journey around Svalbard, and uh, mm. during waking hours, that was on nearly all the time um, in the front room. Even if I wasn't in the front room, it would be there. So when I would go through mm. to make myself a cup of coffee in the kitchen or have have my lunch break or something. It was there. And, oh, that's where they're up to now. And the journey kind of continues on in your head in the background, even if you're not there, if it's still on the screen. Cognitive load. Why we, um, I think one of the reasons, particularly today, we find train journeys as a relaxing thing is we are used to having our own environment, um, our own means of transport. So most of us will probably own or drive a car. Obviously, driving is a very cognitive loaded experience. We have to be paying attention or you or your others are going to get injured or, or worse. Sitting on a train, and I sound like I'm going to do a train company advert now. Sitting on a train, you're there, you're relaxed. You haven't got to pay so much attention. You can put your head against the window and fall asleep. Um, yeah. You can follow something in the landscape for as long as you like. Um, yeah. yeah. 
it's a very different experience. So perhaps the Victorian period, the early industrial period where trains worked with a new, amazing, fast technology. I wonder if they would have experienced it in the same way as we do, because uh, I reckon that we probably experience it as a juxtaposition, as a contrast to driving or, um, yeah, or much more individually steered forms of transport. Yeah, I mean, today we're... It's not going by train. is not something spectacular in in itself. Uh, it's and I think that adds to it. I mean, of course, you can go on a on a beautiful train ride and so on, but it's not uh, the train itself is not uh, something that um, demands so much of you. You can really relax there, and, and then you can let things unfold as they do the landscape passing by and so on so so in one way a train ride is i mean you're looking out a window that is more or less like a screen to to nature so it's you can really say that uh, a train ride is the sort of proto slow tv (laughs) really in, in one sense you know, you will pass by things that happen, and you can observe, but uh, uh, you won't uh, you won't see what uh, what the events lead to, or what happens next with the characters you pass by on the train. Resources for studying slow TV. Just steering it back a little onto that. One of the absolute gifts that I came across when I was studying, trying to find academic reflection on slow TV, mm. um, I came across references to um, media psychology and it became aware that actually within my own university at the time, there was the UK's only media psychology course and the, the man... Um, who delivered that was in, in a different building within the same university. Uh, mm. And I was able to interview him, Dr. Adam Galpin. He's features briefly a couple of times in my documentary. Mm. And I do have um, an audio recording of a couple interviews I've done with him in person, which I will intend putting into this podcast, hopefully within mm. the next few episodes. There's ideas around the state of flow as well. If you come across somebody called me, Oh gosh. It's Mihai Chekmenta. Oh, gosh. I'm going to have yeah. to look him up now. <laughs> Anyone listening uh, is going to have a laugh uh, at this. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, he wrote a book. Uh, was it in the 70s on flow? Yeah. Like but yeah. It, it's a very interesting way of exploring how some people can may get slow TV uh, and other people know. Mm. Like, state of flow. Mihai Chiksen Mihai. Yeah, it's a well-known book. I haven't read it. I, I, I think I have it in my uh, bookshelf somewhere, but I never gotten around to read it. If if you again, I, this is very symptomatic of of perhaps why slow TV works and is needed. If you want a quick fix around not reading the book, there are some very good talks on YouTube and TED talks around the state of flow, which distill mm. the essential thinking of the state of flow without having to read a book for hours um i haven't read the book i can imagine it may be it might be quite heavy going um, mm. um i i don't know so if anyone has read this read it who's listening to this and disagrees with me please disagree with me and let me know it's actually a really easy read um, mm. <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, um, TED Talks, State of Flow, that's uh, how I learned about it for, and I think I probably credited them in my bibliography um, for my writing. I, I guess we could do a, a, a separate podcast episode just with um, talking about various sources. Um, yeah. And preparing for it a bit in advance, because I, yeah, yeah. As, as I'm looking now uh, for my, um, I'm preparing for my master's thesis as well uh, for next year. I will have to update my uh, bibliography and so on. So I've discovered a few interesting sources. Okay, yeah, that would be. I've already mentioned in praise of slow, Carl Honore. Yeah. I'm I'm quite a highlighter and underliner in books. I I, I use them. Uh, like almost as as a notepad as well as I go through, I will underline uh, and make comments in them. Yeah. The other key academic or thoughtful book I read for it was the uh, Tyranny of the Moment. Thomas Hulland Erickson. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I read that as well. So it's... very insightful. You, yeah. This 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 is one one of the really exciting discoveries when I was studying slow TV is that suddenly. You begin questioning like the nature of time, of experience. Mm. Uh, I, I would go to the cinema, I would watch TV, listen to the radio, and think, "How am I experiencing this? Um, mm. What's going on?" Suddenly, it's a, it's a whole new universe, a way of understanding how the world around us becomes mediated to us. It becomes very profound, very deep. And yeah. in that other potentially the other uh podcast we can do there's a kind of a spirituality which develops around slow tv as well you become thinking about um slow forms of being so different forms of meditation myself coming from um, a christian background i originally trained to be a priest i started out in the in the very lively happy clappy churches very noisy not much time for deceleration whereas these days i'm much more of a contemplative um, I could quite easily but happily become a hermit um, <laughs> and e- experience a lot more through a very decelerated environment or a, a natural environment. So even before we were, were in lockdown, um, I, I got a lot more from being in nature, uh, allowing things t- to present themselves to me at, at a natural pace. So shifts and lighting, animals, birdsong. And here in the UK, the lockdown has eased a bit in the last few days and there's a, a big nature reserve nearby and we were uh, within our legal permission to be able to drive there five minutes away and walk around it and that has become such a special place um you're on my facebook so you, you'll probably have seen some of my pictures from this nature reserve and yeah. it, it becomes a real special place and you experience something greater than yourself through this uh, just a decelerated natural pace environment. And it's, it's very profound. It's very spiritual. It's, and it's a medicine for the brain. Like I don't mind saying this. I have a couple of conditions which, if I catch COVID-19, make it likely that I will have a bit of a fight on my hands. Mm. Uh, and, and that's generated an awful lot of anxiety. Um, yes, of course, I've experienced anxiety of sorts in my life before for, for different reasons and different contexts, whereas this has been a particularly sustained anxiety. Uh, a lot of the time I'm fine. Um, like at the moment, I'm, I'm talking with you. Mm. I, I'm not too absorbed in my own thoughts and worries. And every now and again, it kind of comes over you a bit like a, a mental tsunami and you feel really overwhelmed 
But then you get the chance to be out in nature and experience things at that decelerated pace, and mm. it becomes a medicine to you, which is, I think, one of their very strong applications of slow TV and what people who experience slow TV find is that they actually, yes, it, it, it becomes a, a mental salve, a mental medicine to take and relax. There, I think there was a company in Denmark who have developed um, slow TV films to show to uh, residents in elderly uh, homes, and I think particularly those with dementia, and they're doing old-style films or uh, films on subjects for people with dementia that would have been around when they were young. Because with you probably know with with dementia, it's the, the recent memories go, but the memories laid down in childhood and youth stay. And so they're using slow TV as a way to to put them in a very happy, good mental place of their yeah. youth. When I've got a couple more episodes of this out, I would like to approach them and see if, if they have somebody who could do an interview like this in English. Because yeah. um, they've got a nice portfolio already on online. They have a few social media channels. And uh, it's when, when I saw that, I thought, yes. This is this is one of the things that slow TV should really be about. Is, is not what can we? I feel in the UK, it's been seen as a cheap uh, way of making a program to oh. fit into one of the less important channels, like BBC Four. It is a good channel. It is a, a popular mm. channel among older viewers. But one of the things the Norwegians get, NRK gets, is if if you put it onto one of the principal channels suddenly you're sending to the viewer the idea innate within that, like the signal, um, the, the semiotic, that this is important. We're putting this on an important channel. So if, if we think this is important, you're going to think this is important and more of you will tune in. So mm. so in the UK, I don't think Slow TV has been given the importance it could. It is done within Norway, which right. is why I think Norway's had such the success with it. And that there is actually an appetite for very decelerated media, not all the time, because yeah. then it ceases to be something different that you can tune into. But every now and then, something slow, decelerated. Yeah, and um, it's interesting with the, if you look at Sweden. Uh, in Sweden, uh, the the stora elvandringen, the Great Moose Migration, that was broadcast uh, was. Um, running last year and 2019 and once again this year 2020 it's been mainly um, um, accessible through uh, the play channel the the web streaming channel of SVT the public service company Uh, but they've also shown like uh, five or six hours a day on, on one of the uh, linear TV channels uh, called Kunskapskanal and the Knowledge Channel. And there were a lot of... Um, uh, I monitored a, a Facebook group that, uh, uh, for fans of this um, news migration and there were uh, several uh, posts that uh, asked, uh, were confused that they only showed 
parts of the program on TV and so on. They couldn't find it on the Play Channel, or they didn't have access to Play Channel, and so on. So it's uh, it's uh, I haven't really um, um, digged into it yet, but it, there was certainly um, a discussion about or, or a, um, a discourse from uh, some of the viewers that uh, elderly people and uh, and other categories of people were a bit excluded by not being able to see parts of the programs that they would really have enjoyed. So I don't really know how how big this uh, left-out group of viewers are, or if it's mostly speculation. But So Sweden uh, didn't really uh, make this as strong a uh, leap or commitment as NRK did uh, when they started. But then again, it's, it's uh, 10 years later when Sweden started, so the, um, the media landscape has also changed a bit. So it's uh, probably less and less common that people watch linear TV and are more used to watching stream yeah. uh, television. So, but that's uh, I haven't uh, yet I haven't yet spoken to any any of the uh, staff at SVT. But I'm, that is one thing I hope to do um, as I'm working with my master's thesis. So I will ask them about, about uh, what drove their choices as to publishing platforms and so on. Um, and, uh, but, I, yeah, I was to jump back a bit uh, when you were talking about uh, seeking out nature and, and so on as a way of soothing yourself. It's quite interesting that, um, uh, that slow TV uh, works as a soothing thing today because it's, it's still a, a media experience. You you want you you want to watch something on a on a on your television or computer. So you you don't you don't need to escape media to relax necessarily. You don't really. I mean, obviously, it, I I kind of feel that it's probably even nicer to go out in nature <laughs> than to watch television, but. But it, it, you shouldn't really uh, downplay uh, the fact that we live uh, um, our lives so uh, so much in connection with um, uh, uh, audio, visual images, and sounds, um, and uh, we don't necessarily have to to uh, reject them. We can we can explore and find new ways of. Uh, enjoying or experiencing them, so it's. I find it uh, quite intriguing the fact that um, uh, while slow TV programs, as as the moose migration in Sweden and various programs in Norway, they are they can feel like some kind of old style television because uh, they they are slower than the pace the pacing you're used to. But uh, they are programs that have, they have never existed before. This is a new thing, and it's only possible thanks to advanced technology, advanced digital technology. So it's it's a very the the, the technological base is very important as well. 
in all of this. You couldn't have done uh, this kind of slow TV in the 70s and so on. It, you have you could probably have done similar things, but uh, both uh, from the technical point that you need uh, you need uh, cameras that can record and send live for long stretches of time and so on, mm-hmm. but also um, the fact that you have uh, there are like you have room in the uh, with the digital technologies uh, you have a lot of more space to transmit things as well uh, in the 70s or whatever i don't think nrk would have chosen to to uh, take uh, the whole real estate of one of their channels for this kind of program because people didn't have any alternatives then but today they have uh, they have streaming channels and other ways of of getting their information they're not that tied to these two channels so in, in one sense I would guess that uh, NRK2 the, the channel they used to broadcast uh, the, their programs was sort of freed up as well for, for this kind of thing um, but that's a bit of speculation for my part so. uh, am I correct in thinking that uh, NRK was the sole TV channel in Norway until quite recent like TV2 the commercial channel is a, a relatively recent addition to the broadcast landscape in Norway, so that Norway does have a, a lot tighter relationship to its national broadcaster than perhaps some other countries do? I must admit, I'm not that uh, familiar with the, the exact nature of NRK's history. Okay. So I'm just sort of uh, assuming they have a similar history as Sweden, where... Um, where, where in the seventies there were only two two TV channels and they were uh, public service. But I guess an, a quick Google can uh, give us the information. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. All other TV channels broadcast from Norway were banned from 1960 until 1981. Uh, yes, in in the UK until the early eighties, all we had were three channels: BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. And then along mm. came Channel 4. You studied some some aspects of the Moose Migration Slow TV from Sweden last year, and you're doing that again this year. Mm. What would you like to say about your gut feelings, your reflections on it so far, or what you're mm. hoping to gain with your research? Yeah, it's uh, quite early for me, to, so I can't really say too much, and it's very much speculations on my part. But uh, one thing I'm really interested in by itself is the how is uh, the Swedish uh, slow TV, how does it differ, what are the similarities as compared to the Norwegian kind of slow TV. And... Uh, uh, I guess, in a way, uh, the Swedish experiment has uh, just been going now for the sec- second year, so that it's not like a, an established format or tradition in the same sense as um, uh, Norway's uh, minute for minute. But um, if you just, uh, if you still look, if you just do a quick comparison. Uh, one obvious thing is that um, the moose migration programs, they are really uh, about 
in some sense always more or less about a journey somewhere. It's at least the, the initial ones with the train ride and the boat rides, uh, ferry rides, and so on. And even uh, uh, a program such as uh, the National Knitting Night or whatever it was called, it's also kind of journey from from sheep to um, yeah. to uh, finished sweater. So there, there are there's sort of um, an overarching narrative in any way. Um, it's, there's a start and a destination, and something that some things happens along the way. Whereas uh, the the moose migration, uh, I mean, the journey is done by the moose, and we just occasionally see them yeah. in picture or not. So the cameras are fixed in a few places and monitor that place and there are no uh, humans visible more or less so it's um, Norwegian programs are seem to be very much about showing people as well and yeah loving Norway yes yeah (laughs) so uh, I I didn't catch any of the moose migration this year Uh, my mind's been in other places when I caught it the previous year when there was, in inverted commas, nothing happening, what you would see was just a steady rotation through the different camera mm. angles. And then yeah. when something begins to happen, a moose appears, uh, a, a reindeer interferes with a camera, if I remember correctly, mm. some of the highlights, then there, there, there are people who are curating the images and they will select that image, that, that story being presented in that moment to mm. stay on the screen for longer. Yeah, and uh, I I got the impression that they were a bit more active uh, with following the action this year, but I, I haven't really established if that is the case. But uh, they have uh, the cameras are rotating on some kind of schedule, uh, but they have uh, there is um, people in a control room from early morning to late night, uh, so they they. Continue, continually monitor when things happen and take over control and they move the cam, the pan pan and zoom the cameras and so on. So it's um, in that sense, uh, and that's a bit of a, uh, interesting as well. That uh, as a viewer, you have uh, it's up to you to decide what is important as long as the cameras just uh, move on a, on a. On, on a on an interval or on a schedule, but uh, as soon as a camera operator takes over, it becomes quite obvious what is what is of relevance in this picture and so on. What is it that you want to see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thinking about the way that the Swedish slow TV and Norwegian slow TV are, are contrasted, NRK have done some more nature based. Uh, slow TVs. There was the bird watching. Was it Fjell Oya up, up near Kirkenes? They did a year or two ago. And lots of different yeah. high quality webcams and some um, manned cameras following thousands and thousands of birds high on a cliff somewhere in the yeah. far north of Norway. I'm trying to think of the other nature ones. They, uh, yeah, again, it was a journey. It was the reindeer migration. That was amazing. Yeah. But typically, Norway seems to be. Tying into some sense of of national heritage, culture, mm. identity. Not that they were, not that initially it was invited or expected, but people in uh, 
the Bergensbahn and started by waving off. And I think somebody waved a Norwegian flag. And oh. then when they did the Hurtigruten uh, journey, it became a thing for people to turn up at the at the docks at the key sides where um, the vessel was was approaching and unloading, where where people would participate in a shared sense of identity in the program. Um, in our, in our chat we were doing before we started recording this, um, I commented that I, I think that perhaps Norway, for celebrating its national day and its national heritage, is probably unique among the nations of the world. Um, I mentioned I was in in in, in the states in two thousand and nine for the Fourth of July, and uh, folk got very excited about that, but. For organised activities, parades, um, mm. Norway takes takes it off the scale for the seventeenth of May celebrations, and so there is something very much in Norwegian slow TV that mm. the emphasis in the Norwegian is is very important. Yeah, I think it's. Um, um, I get the impression that that is something that's a bit different in Sweden that um, you can't really. Uh, you can't express that kind of uh, national pride or, or cultural pride in Sweden. It's, I mean, it's much more sensitive to do that in Sweden because it's uh, it's easy to get associated with um, uh, right. nationalistic tendencies and so on, and yeah. with some course, of course. Uh, so, but but still, the the moose migration as such is. Um, it, it is a very ties very well into what I would say is, is um, Swedish anyway because it's the moose is a very um, important it's a very uh, the I mean the yearly moose hunt as well it's it's something that uh, involves a lot of people in Sweden and of course uh, a lot of people. Um, don't like that people kill moose and so on and it's debated but I mean but the moose are a big part of Swedish nature and uh, uh, the image of Sweden so um, I think it was a very um, uh, smart choice to to choose that um, topic for the program. So there is some sense of of a participation in national identity going on with the moose migration? Yeah, I might be exaggerating that a bit, but I, I think at least uh, as viewers, uh, we all uh, as Swedes growing, growing, growing up in Sweden have heard about moose and uh, know about moose a little and are curious about moose. I mean, you do get uh, amazing pictures, images of, of moose uh, during this program, and you can see them in their uh, uh, quite natural habitat. So it um, draws a lot of uh, interest. Germans are rumored to be very interested in moose. So okay. So there's been very good. Um, uh, they have been had a good cooperation with. Um, and there's like a, um, a, a nature agency in Sweden that uh, deals with. Um, wildlife basically and forests and moose i don't know how you translate it but they have been quite involved in 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 having small information segments and participating in the facebook forums and on their own web page and so on answering a lot of questions because 
a lot of there are a lot of questions about most people get really interested in it so. mm-hmm. and there's been uh, a few teachers who have mentioned that they they show the program in their school basically and uh, involve the kids in in learning and watching mm-hmm. so, so there's a big interest in in those You've put a questionnaire to the forum and you've had a lot of responses back. Yeah. So this, this is going to help inform some of your studies for your master's? Yeah, uh, I hope so. It's um, I did one last year and I got a, about a little, a little about above 100 responses. And this year I got uh, like uh, over 700 responses. Wow. Quite impressive. It's the forum last year was uh, in the Facebook forum had uh, 1,600 members at the end of the, that year's program, and uh, at the end of this year's program there were over 9,000 members. So it's really grown. Uh, and uh, of course, um, my survey will not give me information on. How on all uh, how all viewers experience this program? It, it's I mean it's the fact that it's um, uh, a survey that uh, mostly is answered by uh, the Facebook group followers in itself is um, uh, restricting uh, who who gets a voice and and then it's not all all of the members that answers in the survey. So it's a lot of, uh, uh, there will probably a lot be several groups of interests that are not represented in, in, in the yeah. I survey. Guess. But, but it's still, uh, I still believe I, I will be able to find a lot of uh, what uh, people, what, what they, why are they drawn to this uh, program and what do they experience and, uh, and um, how does it make them feel, and and so on. So, and, and this year I I modified the survey a little to focus more on uh, social media aspects because um, I find that quite uh, as and that's I guess is the same in in the Norwegian programs. The social media is a very important part of the slow TV experience. Yeah. Uh, which is in itself is interesting because um, social media isn't really slow. In, in I mean, it's it's um, a more it's a, a quick way of communicating basically. But it's it's really important, and and that is not really a slow aspect, I would say. But but the the fact that you build sort of a community with our other viewers is an important factor in what draws people to these um, slow TV programs. Um, I remember there's a concept of media events that uh, one uses to describe sort of like big sports events and and other like global happenings that uh, people experience and uh, uh, relate to over media or they share something over media. In some sense, uh, these very slow TV programs are creating a media event, but a very slow media event. It's not like a terrorist attack or, mm. or anything dramatic happening. It's very undramatic, but it's still a way of uh, people connecting and 
uh, finding some some kind of common ground with other people. So it's, um, the social, social media aspect is really interesting, but I, I don't really want to. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a, a communication scholar as such, so I will not be. Uh, the major folks will not be social media as such or the use of it, but. Uh, but as I, I will try to find some kind of um, how people use it in relation to this program, at least. Okay. And I did. I also posted a few short questions about how they experienced this um, program now during the Corona crisis, and um, if they sort of if it made them watch this program more, or if they wouldn't have watched it at all, if, and uh, if it affected their uh, social media habits and so on because uh, I mean that's one thing you also see um, I mean the, the Swedish um, um, program this year was um, it was started uh, one week earlier than was origi- originally planned and that was uh, just to uh, so people would have something to watch so it was a, it was a um, conscious decision from SVT to uh, to provide something for people okay. at home. You posted your questionnaire within the group for the moose migration. So there's going to be a, a natural sense of self-selection from people responding to that. So you're not going to get necessarily people going, oh, this was a load of rubbish. Why Why is our national broadcaster spending money doing this? I, I know when there are some, sometimes for, for, for Norway and in the UK, there are some naysayers um, that don't think it's a worthwhile uh, usage of their uh, license fee in, in Norway and in here. I don't know if it's the same for Sweden, but for your national broadcaster, you, you pay an, an annual fee. Reflecting on to the social media participation, this is one of the, the areas that fascinates me. I do ruminate, I do think about um, doing a PhD on some aspect of slow TV. And one of the things that really sparks my interest is this community that sparks up around a slow TV broadcast. There's a very special feeling going on within that. There must be some kind of dopamine uh, feedback. You're you're sharing the love and and enthusing together. And each new tweet, each new interaction that comes in, and you kind of think, yeah, I'm in the moment of this. And then um, with the NRK Svalbard and other, other ones, I know when I've tweeted and then you see your tweet come up on the screen and, and you know that that's going out to everybody watching this. Yeah. This is going into the recording of this. This is becoming a part of this yeah. broadcast for however long the broadcast will re- remain in some form or other. Yeah. So th- there is there yeah th- there there is some very biochemical response going on within that as well as the social dyna- dynamic yeah. and the speed. Um, I, I often do saved searches when there are specific broadcasts going on so that I can s- see what's being said and hopefully pick out particularly interesting or relevant ones. Oh. A- and the speed of which sometimes the, the, the material is generated is incredible, especially if you were involved in it. When I was filming in Trondheim in 2014 for the um, Salma book, Minute for Minute, the hymn book sing-through, um, I... On the last evening, I got interviewed on NRK2 Live. And uh, when I got back to the hotel, like my Twitter, I, I had like hundreds of notifications 
<laughs> and and a good number of sort of citing me on social media. Yeah. And yeah, it, it it was busy. It was relentless. There was a massive sense of of love, of participation, of enjoyment, uh, and very validating as well. So yeah, it's really uh, you can really see that in the um, in the Facebook group uh, this year as well. That uh, and I think people value it a bit extra because of the the Corona situation. That they want like a safe place where. Um, where they can be uh, enjoying nature and i mean there are thrills in nature with the like a moose uh, falling through the ice or something like that but it's not like uh, uh, i mean it's very concrete and it's not uh, it's not a big uh, difficult threat from the outside and so it's not uh, uh, it's a way of, sca- of escaping basically into into nature and you can see a few uh, um postings where they sort of uh, react to uh, as soon as someone is is being a bit critical or something that is sort of seen as spoiling the, okay. the mood so it's it's a bit protective as well of, of, of the of the mood of it all and uh, i mean people are so used to being on um, uh, social media and encountering hatred or or conflicts or trolling and so on so um, I, I think uh, that's an important factor as well. That this is a way of um, this, this is a way of finding uh, a place without conflict, basically. But mm-hmm. still, there are conflict because if someone writes uh, that they want to see a wolf, perhaps you will have a lot of because of the wolf the wolf debate is very infected in Sweden. So there's a lot of various camps there and so so uh, and of course some people write about um, that you shouldn't hunt moose and so on and uh, but those kind of debates seem to be uh, rather rare in a way in this forum sense so when somebody's asking to see a wolf is it wolves are hunted in sweden or that the wolves predate hunt moose and that they might kill a moose or What's the controversy there? I mean, those who don't like wolves, it's because they they feel um, that the wolves um, kill uh, reindeer, perhaps, or, okay. or 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 dogs of hunters and so on, or or perhaps other kind of livestock and so on. And there are there aren't that many wolves as I, for as I know in the Sweden tried to sort of bring in more wolves and that's already always a heated debate and there are a lot of okay. poaching of wolves and so on but i can't really <laughs> i can't really uh, speak too much about this because i don't really i'm not well okay. well worked in the details so it's a complicated issue it's been really enjoyable talking to you so Hopefully we can do it again. Uh, there's a lot of things to discuss uh, around slow TV and yes, huge u- universes. Yeah, when you feel, I find that I'm researching this field, but it feels like nobody else has really ever looked at. It's like wow, yeah. and so yeah, so it's good to vibe with you yeah. over this. So. <laughs> 
I didn't expect to be be so uh, fluent in this that I was, but um, it was really a nice discussion. So thank you, Bjorn. All new material, copyright Tim Prevett. Mm-hmm.